This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comic show here on the network. I am your host Matthew Rushing and with me my co-host, my co-pilot, Dan Gunther. Dan, how's it going? Hi Matthew. Uh, as usual, not too bad and always really great to be here. Uh, you know, just kind of sitting around planning out, uh, writing my memoirs, really. Um, I'm not sure what to call it, but, uh, I don't know how exciting they'll be so far, but hopefully not too bad. I have one suggestion on what not to call it. Don't call it Dan the Man. I I, (laughs) I think that that may just be overdone. Yeah, you know, that, that might be, uh, hold on, let me just scratch something out here. (laughs) Okay. Well, I mean, it's sure to to be a fascinating read because nothing but exciting things happen in Canada, uh, which, you know, I mean, just this summer, you guys hosted the World Cup. Um, I mean, America won, but uh, that's still exciting, and it happened in Canada. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, moving on, what are you up to, Matthew? (laughs) (laughs) Well, sadly enough, honestly, we don't have anything in news today. Um, the only thing that I wanted to remind people, because it's a big deal, James Swallow's brand new book, Sight Unseen, his newest Titan book, is out. It came out today as of the day we were recording here. But by the time you get this show, it'll already be out. By the time you're listening to this show in the future, it'll be out. So check out James Swallow's Sight Unseen. Uh, honestly, Great thing about this book so far, I'm, I'm not that far in, about probably 25% done, Dan, and mm-hmm. there's already some great references to some people from Trek FM and some things from Trek FM in the book. So if you're an ardent listener here, you have some Easter eggs in this book, uh, and I'm really interested to see people begin to pick them out and post them on the Babel Conference. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. It was uh, it was neat to see the, the couple that I've see, uh, found so far, so... Uh, yeah, let us know if uh, if you find them and, and, you know, what you found and what you thought. <laughs> well, speaking of that, it's a perfect time to remind everybody, obviously, that uh, Literary Treks is part of the Trek FM network. We have 20 different shows plus special feeds. We've got so much for you here on the network. You can go to iTunes.com slash Trek FM and you can find all the shows. You can also 
find us on the web at trek.fm and that's a great place to go we have all the shows listed there we got the show pages all the links that we have on the show pages the things we talk about all the different places you can find us of course we're on twitter at trek.fm facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm if you'd like to contact us and tell us some of the things that you've been seeing in sight unseen that have to do with trek.fm the little easter eggs in there Go to trek.fm slash contact. Just choose a show there. You can send us your thoughts and what you've been thinking about that book and maybe some of the things you've picked up on. And we also have a Goodreads group, which is a great place to go because it lets you know what's coming up on the show, the things that we're going to be doing next. And it also has a great place for you to see all the different books and comics that we've covered throughout the couple of years, at three years, that we've been going on Literary Treks now. So there's the bookshelf there. You can take a look, see what we've been covering, what we are going to cover, and then we've got the great discussions going on there as well. And then, of course, Dan, I, I think probably one of the best places for people to really interact if they're a listener here of Literary Treks is the Babel Conference. Definitely, Matthew. It's a great Facebook group uh, where we discuss all the recent shows of all the shows on Trek FM, as well as just great general Star Trek discussion and general geek discussion. So it's a it's a really great place to connect with the people who do these shows and a great place for us to talk to our listeners. So, yeah, it really is. So just go to Facebook, type Babel in the search field there, or you can go to any of the show pages at Trek.fm and click Discussion on the menu bar. Now, Dan, if you're not too busy scribbling down some notes for your memoirs, how about we jump into our interview with David A. Goodman and talk about somebody else's memoirs? Oh, that sounds pretty exciting. Uh, Yeah, let's talk about the story of Starfleet's greatest captain. Dan, I am really excited tonight because uh, we have a great guest with us to talk about a brand new book that has just come out. And uh, it's definitely something that I think is going to be a treat for Trek fans out there everywhere. It's the autobiography of James T. Kirk by the man himself. Uh, And we have the editor with us tonight of that book. Uh, (laughs) And so I'm wondering what kind of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey things he had to go through to, to be the editor of this book. But David A. Goodman, it is great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much, man. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, really happy to have you on for sure. Thanks, Dan. You did Federation First 150 Years, which was a really... That's right. Just a really great book about just kind of the the history of the Federation from, you know, uh, before Archer all the way forward. And uh, you ended that book, if I'm remembering correctly, after the Kittimer Accords uh, were finally signed uh, after Star Trek VI... Uh, yes, that was that was uh, it was like uh, 100 on the 150th anniversary of the founding of the Federation is when I ended it, which was shortly after the events of Undiscovered Country. So the idea for and just kind of the I guess the the kernel, the genesis, where did it come from this idea? OK, what if we did an, a book that was the autobiography of, you know, Star Trek's most famous person. You know, it's interesting. The idea was not initially mine. It was the idea of Dave Rossi, who I worked with on Star Trek Enterprise, who was a producer on Star Trek Enterprise. And he had, he was the person who hooked me up with CBS Consumer Products to do the first book. And then, and then also he thought, what about an autobiography 
of Kirk. And I have to say, I had a lot of resistance to it at the beginning. I, I didn't know, honestly, how I would approach the book, how would writing in Kirk's voice, I, I felt like it was a real challenge, but everyone was so excited about this idea. And it was the kind of thing that I just couldn't say no to. And it, and it was also the kind of idea that I didn't want to let someone else write. I felt like I would uh, attack it in a way that as a reader, uh, I would be, would, you know, I, whenever I write something that's, that's Star Trek or, or related to Star Trek, I want, I'm a, I'm a fan first. So I don't want to write something that would piss me off by getting <laughs> something wrong, something important wrong. And so I really was sort of driven to do this book the way I would want it to be done. Uh, and I started thinking about, once the idea was sold, I just started thinking about, uh, well, what is this book? I mean, who, who you know, what? what is going to make this book different than all the other books out there that play in that space of the stuff we didn't see or the stuff that happened right before or right after the stuff we did see, you know what I mean? Uh, so much of Trek lit is that. Is oh, like, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. Here's, you know, here's, here's Kirk and Gary Mitchell, um, uh, you know, on their first assignment or here, here are the events that happened right between Star Trek uh, six and generations or, you know, or here, here is this character from best of both worlds now on this other ship, uh, you know? And so uh, with, with the Kirk book, it was, okay, how am I going to do that? I don't want to just do that because there are plenty of good writers who are doing that kind of book. I wanted the book to be, also be something else to, to say, to figure out a way to make this character, this hero to so many people more human in a way that doesn't contradict anything we already know about. For you, as you were thinking about that, and, and honestly, I guess, what was it like trying to put yourself in the mindset of who James Kirk is and what research did you do to help yourself really get in what you felt like would be the, the frame set for Kirk himself sitting down to write his life story? Well, I mean, I'm as big a Star Trek fan as anybody. So I didn't really have to do any research about Star Trek. <laughs> I mean, I'm always, I'm always researching Star Trek. I'm always watching it. I'm always reading about it. It's not, I'm, I'm, I, I imagine your audience knows what I'm talking about. It's mm -hmm. an endless yeah. passion and you guys obviously know about it as well. It's like you just you never get tired of it. You never get tired of it. <laughs> Definitely. So, yeah. And as a result, you're always well researched on it. And there might have been things that I double checked. But for me, the idea was okay, it's not just Kirk as we've seen him. We also want I went back to sort of some some what I would consider source material. So that actually source material in other genres. So for instance, I've, I had read all the Hornblower books and since Horatio Hornblower was an inspiration for Kirk, I went back and reread a couple of them, especially sort of some of the earlier ones of what it was like the first command. I also mm -hmm. read um, a couple of actual nonfiction autobiographies, one Norman Schwarzkopf's uh, autobiography, because he went to, 
um, less point, and I thought that there might be some things to draw from for that for Kirk and, and for the Academy. And I was really trying to find, so, and I also read uh, uh, bi- some biography of, of Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, and then I also am a big fan of the author Herman Luke, who wrote a book called The Cain Mutiny, which is a great book about, um, it's a great novel. Uh, uh, that takes place during World War II. And it's a great novel about what it's like for uh, a lieutenant serving in the Navy or an ensign. And I wanted, I wanted some feelings of, of that, of like what, what, what Kirk's feelings would be in all those, in all those places, um, like at the Academy and then on his first assignment. So that, that was kind of some research that I did there. And then um and then I, I had to write a whole section about the farm on Earth, which was really, I wanted, I wanted to somehow create this 23rd century idea of a farm and, and not have it be boring, because I, I was generally bored by that idea of, of life on a farm. It just yeah. doesn't sound interesting to me. <laughs> so, so how do I make that interesting? And the way I made that interesting was getting into Kirk's character. So, so that was some of the research that I did. And then it was just thinking about who this man is. And so, and this, I mean, I think this, this might upset readers, although I'm getting a good response from it. Did you guys read the book? Yes. Oh yeah. Yes. Oh, good. Uh, well, I'll be interested to hear what you think about it. So the thing that, uh, I really settled on was, that's an important piece of his life was the fact that he was a father during the entire run of the original series. That is, mm-hmm. if you do the math, mm-hmm. backtracking from Wrath of Khan, David Marcus was alive and a child when Kirk was captain of the Enterprise original mm-hmm. during the original season. And I'm thinking to myself that even in Wrath of Khan, where Carol Marcus says, well, you know, I wanted you to go away. The fact is, Kirk, speaking for myself as both a father and a son, um, when a man makes a decision, when a man leaves his children, he's making a decision. Right. Um, he's choosing his career over family. And as soon as I made that connection, a lot of other things started to fall into place because throughout the original series, the writers of the original series were constantly pointing out that Kirk was lonely, that Kirk was married to his ship and couldn't have like a naked time, a beach to walk on with a beautiful woman. Um, he, you know, or he, 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 the way he fell out of love with the dolmen of Elos was because he was already in love with the enterprise. Uh, mm-hmm. The loneliness in the episode, uh, Requiem from Methuselah, you know, you, the, all this, there's constant and city on the edge of forever. There's all this talk about this guy is lonely. And I thought, why not even add this further thing onto it that doesn't contradict that, which is this guy gave up a life uh, of a family because of his drive to become this, this great starship commander. And then going even further, delving into the character, well, why? If, you know, why, and, and without getting too psychological, I thought the best way to that would be if there was some bit of his childhood that was a little broken, not not toxic and not not anything 
uh, that would be hard to swallow, but perhaps his parents' marriage had some difficulties. And that would lead the child, I think, to maybe say, you know what, I want to be home. I want to be out in space. And it was really, that's really, that was really it. That was really the sort of the mass that I did that gave me a story to tell and gave me uh, Kirk's story as he's telling it and saying, this is why I am who I am. And it doesn't contradict anything we see and it actually helps support it and make, you know, the, the heroism and who he was a, a little uh, great and tragic. Well, and it, it does a good job to, you know, humanize somebody that everybody kind of deifies, you know, when it comes to these mm-hmm. kind of characters. I was just thinking of, um, there's a new book out called uh, Killing Reagan, and I was reading the flap for it, Bill O'Reilly's new book, and just the idea of, of right. Reagan. He's a he's a man, you know. People love him, but he was also just a man, and right. he had uh, foibles and fears and bad days and good days. And the same thing with Kirk, you know. He's he's not perfect, and he had just as many things going on. Reagan's a great guy to great. Reagan's a great guy to bring up because his dad was this raging drunk. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know he had to sort of drag him in on the, off the porch at night because he'd come home like falling down drunk. And you know you think of, and here he was this kind of great man for the country at the time, uh, but he came from a place that was really kind of dark and also very relatable. So yeah, no, that was very, very much in my mind for Kirk was how do I connect him? And I and I think that most people. I wanted to do something that a lot of people could relate to. Like we've all had some kind of awakening about the imperfections of our parents' marriages or uh, a desire to leave home or, uh, you know, a drive to succeed or difficulty making relationships or these are things that I think are, I wanted to add, wanted to add this human element. And and again, I wasn't doing anything that the writers of Star Trek hadn't already done. That's the thing, is that all I was doing was sort of pulling it together. But the fact is, again, if you look at the original series, he's a guy who makes mistakes. He he will yell at McCoy, and then in the next scene, apologize to McCoy. I shouldn't have yelled at you. Um, you know, he, he makes, he, you know, in Tomorrow's Yesterday, he makes this kind of big wonder of, of turning the tractor beam on the jet fire. I mean, he's not perfect ever in the show, which is, I think, one right. of the reasons that he's such a great character. He's not the perfect hero. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. Well, one thing, I mean, hearing you talk about, about you know, Kirk's life and stuff, it's it's pretty clear that you're a really big Star Trek fan and reading the novel or the book, uh, you get that impression as well. And one thing that I thought was really clever was how you would take small clues from filmed Trek and uh, kind of spin the story off in a completely unexpected way. I'm thinking, for example, uh, Kirk's line in the motion picture about it being difficult to convince Nagura, and we see exactly how he did that, which is, you know, not at all what what I was expecting. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your motivation for kind of, you know, doing more unexpected things like that in the book? Well, I mean, a lot of fans don't like it when you play with their expectations. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, I do think that I was, I was sort of driven with the idea of, I wanted 
to do I, as a writer, I had to keep myself interested. And so when I came up with whatever, what I did with Nagura throughout the book, it was really of interest to me because I think it played into things we'd already seen in Star Trek. We've all seen sort of right up to next generation. We saw bad admirals like in yeah. <laughs> Ensign Row. There's that bad admiral, uh, you know, or, or, or uh, the Pegasus uh, Riker's old commanding officer. It was bad. There's always bad captains, bad, you know, that's one of the, and again, one of my favorite episodes of original Star Trek are, the bad captain episodes like, you know, Ron Tracy and Matt Decker and Commodore um, Stocker. And, uh, uh, you know, I love those flawed guys. And I thought what I did with Nagura didn't in any way um, contradict things we hadn't already seen in filmed Star Trek. And I liked this idea of filling out the universe in a way that wasn't, always positive wasn't always perfect that Mm -hmm. what's great about the federation and earth is that it's a paradise but what i like about it is that the system is the system of the federation is this perfect bureaucracy that keeps the bad attitudes of human beings who still have not perfected themselves uh from causing too much harm. And uh, I thought that there were always sort of signs in original Trek of, of politics, of mm-hmm. um, politics of admirals. And, you know, that amok time, it's a great example. Mm. Uh, Kirk's mm. being sent on this mission. It's clear Kirk thinks this is just a waste of time mission. He's willing to violate orders to save Spock life because it's just he just doesn't think it's an important mission. But uh, the admiral, um, whose name is now slipping my mind, and now I'm losing my credibility as a Star Trek fan because I can't remember the admiral's name <laughs> in the much time, but it'll come back to me. Um, you guys are trying to think of it too, aren't you? Yeah, I'm actually thinking about it right now. I'm like, oh, come on, brain. <laughs> come on. Fitzpatrick, maybe? One of those. Admiral, um, uh, uh, Comac, Admiral Comac. Oh, yeah. as well. oh that's it. Yeah. I, I beat you guys. Uh, Admiral <laughs> Comac is clearly like, you know, we're going to, this is going to send ripples clear to the Klingon Empire. That's just politics. It's not a, important. No one's lives are at stake, whatever. And so uh, I was, I, I, even though you say it's in unexpected ways, I'm really drawing on. The things that I, a lot of the things that I liked about original Star Trek, that was that there was dimension to the universe that everybody didn't always act perfectly. Everybody wasn't always doing things for, you know, great high standing reasons. And, and that uh, just created this character of Nagura, who is sort of a um, kind of a, a character who may have had influence on the people who, who did the, conspiracy in Star Trek Six. I mean, in Star Trek Six, there's a conspiracy between Starfleet admirals, Klingon military, and the Romulan ambassador to to kill the Klingon, uh, the, the chairman of the Klingon High Council. I mean, think about that. That's not perfect. Who are those? Who are those Federation guys who participated in that? So, and what would be their motivation? And that's the other thing too: is that bad guys never think they're bad guys. Bad guys mm-hmm. think they're doing in real life. 
bad guys think they're doing things to help. They're, they're doing the right thing. And so that was the other thing that I had to do in the book was Nogura is a, a, an antagonist, but he's not a bad guy. He thinks he's doing what he needs to do to protect the Federation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did that those... answer your question, Dan, or did I not answer that? Oh, definitely. All? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that one in particular, I thought that was really interesting, kind of tying that to the uh, the Warhawks in Star Trek VI there, because, yeah, it almost does seem to come out of left field when you watch Star Trek VI, but, you know, with kind of supplemental material like this, you kind of see that uh, it kind of makes sense that those attitudes might have been around for quite a while. Right, and it, it does seem natural given what happens in the original series and the attitude towards the Klingons back then, and even mm-hmm. what happens in Enterprise, what the stuff we did there. So it's sort of, you know, it, it, it can connect. It sort of connect. It, it connected. I mean, I had to think of it, but it was it, it was like it made it more interesting. Made a more interesting story to me, and that um, that was that was really the reason I did. And also, when Kirk says that thing in the shuttle pod to Scotty. You know that it, what you're doing that imitation of Scotty saying you're right. It was hard to convince Nagura. I wanted to make it. I really wanted to make it hard. I wanted to, Kirk to do something that was really like risky and difficult. Mm. And and in my book, it has it has real serious consequences. Yeah, and that's the other thing I notice is a lot of what you did in this book kind of adds weight to a lot of these little throwaway lines that we get throughout Star Trek. And like I said, that one in particular really stuck out to me. So now the next time I watch the motion picture and Kirk says, yeah, it was pretty hard. It uh, it's it really kind of, that's going to be in my mind. And uh, that's pretty cool. Well, yeah, and that also played into something in, in the motion picture that McCoy said, you know, again, as fans, we want to see Kirk back in the chair. We want to see him on the bridge of the Enterprise. But he takes the ship away from Decker, who was kind of his son figure to him. You know, and, and what was that about? And I was really trying to fill that in in this book. Is like, how did that relationship start? What was that about? And then how much, and really playing the realness of like, he really screws Decker over. I mean, put him in charge of the ship. Decker spends two years trying to get the ship ready, finally going to get to take it out. And then Kirk says, oh, guess what? (laughs) It's mine now. In real life, Kirk's a real dick. (laughs) And and (laughs) I really, I thought that was really important to say, okay, why is he doing this? Well, again, that's one of those things where there's a side of what makes Kirk great that also makes him not so great i mean it's it's the it's the foibles of human nature you know that no nobody's perfect and like so so even kirk has things about him that you know some of the some of it helps make him who he is that's really really good and some of it's like oh gosh you 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 should probably go to some therapy and work on that uh because you know that's not so great man (laughs) right right but as we're, you know, as as we're Star Trek fans, we're we're with Kirk. So he's screwing someone over to get the Enterprise back. That's what we want too. We want him back on the Enterprise. We want, you know, so he can't. They can't. The writers of those movies can actually, you know, push him a little far to do things that in real life might not be so nice. But on the movie screen, it's like, yeah, yeah, Kirk's back. 
with the canon and working with things, uh, you know, obviously now with what we saw in in the latest films that JJ did, uh, talk about just kind of working with that that canon and and making it, you know, kind of meshing it together with what we have uh, in the prime canon as well. Well, there wasn't much that I had to do. I, I put the Kelvin in there, although I'm very dodgy about saying exactly where Kirk is born. I don't actually say that he was born on the Kelvin uh, in the book. Um, but just mentioning the Kelvin, I think, pisses some true fans off. <laughs> uh, I got a bunch of negative reviews on Amazon from people who didn't even read the book. They just, in the blurb, Kelvin was mentioned, and then that they just said, nope, I'm done. And I like so I like the Kelvin. I like the fact that Kirk uh, Kirk's parents served together, and I use that uh, as a jumping off point. I don't use the events of what happened in Star Trek as a jumping off point. Kirk's dad doesn't die in my book, uh, and neither does his mother. Um, uh, you know, I, I so I played with I, I used the names and those characters and a bit of that history and the name of the captain of the Kelvin. But then from really from that point on, from Kirk's birth on, there really isn't anything to use in, in JJ's movies. Um, because this is prime universe. This is prime universe, Kirk. So uh, my I, I really didn't do anything after that. I like the opening of the first Star Trek movie a lot. Yeah. I, I think anybody who doesn't think that works as Star Trek is just being uh, pissy. It's great. Oh, it's yeah. awesome. Uh, it's a great origin. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. It's great. And, you know, a lot of fans have problems with, with that movie. I love that movie, too. I, I love it all the way through. But the opening, to me, I think just that, that works. It's great. It's wonderful. Um, as part of Star Trek. So I, I use pieces of that. But I, I actually don't actually say where he was born. Just to sort of, uh, honestly, that was my intention was to try to have it both ways. It doesn't work because people see the Kelvin and the people who'd be pissed off by that are pissed off by that. Well, and it, you know, you you can't make every fan happy, but I mean, you as the writer also have right. to deal with the fact that that is part of the canon. And so it, mm -hmm. it's... Well, that, that was my, that was exactly my thinking, which is like, look, I'm a Star Trek. My guiding principle in this is, again, like what, what do I do that, I wouldn't be pissed off. And if, if a writer wrote a autobiography, if someone else wrote this autobiography and didn't reference the Kelvin and made up a new parents that didn't serve together and all this, it would bug me as a fan. So that was, that was my guiding principle was as that, that's what I want. I like that piece. I like the idea that that piece could work as the beginning of the prime universe. And I wanted to use pieces of that and, and I love the, the design. I, you know, again, a lot of people don't like the set design of, uh, you know, uh, how the J.J. Abrams movies portray engineering or whatever. But, uh, you know, I love that stuff. I thought that was a great reimagining. It's kind of like being, honestly, a, a Star Wars fan. And it's like, you, you might not like the prequels, but you can't stop them from existing and being part of the story now. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, and, and uh, you can't, you, I think that as fans, we want the thing we had uh, that, that was somehow ours. <laughs> and, and we as fans, we all 
do what I did in this book. All fans do what I did, which is fill in all the hardcore fans. They fill in the blanks however they want. And because there are blanks, there are things that, you know, Starfleet Academy has never really been portrayed. Like, it, it, I guess we get a little bit of it in Next Generation, Deep Space Nine. Um, but we don't really ever get a sense of like what it, what this place was like. And in our minds, we filled in our, our filled it in, in our own way mm-hmm. based on the mm-hmm. snippets that we've gotten. Uh, but again, that was like something that I had to sit down and sort of, okay, I need to figure this place out. Like, what is this place? And what's it like for Kirk to go there? And what's its purpose? And I did, I sort of uh, engineered it back from what I knew. And I figured, what did this place have to be? And I'm sure that there are people who won't like my portrayal of Starfleet Academy, but I was I was drawing from the sources of the original series and of what Kirk said about it and what we saw about it. Um, and that's just an exa- one example of something that I think some fans might not like of my book. Mm. Well, one of the things that I found in this book that was really clever and a really interesting choice, and uh, we, we should warn people that we are going to spoil things a little bit, um, kind of your approach to Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, I thought was uh, really clever. Um, and I, I think it's a choice like I that I really enjoyed. I think that that's one choice that might prove to be pretty controversial among some fans. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you came up with, you know, that angle for the story, because uh, I'm really curious to see, you know, where in the process that idea came about. Well, I've always had this idea that a piece of the idea I've always had, it didn't have actually anything to do with Star Trek V. And it was a short story that I was going to try to write that I was going to submit to one of the Star Trek fan short story collections many years ago. And the idea was that on the uh, Roman planet in Breton circuses that Kirk had, he had slept with Drusilla, the, the slave, and that, that she had a child. And that this child, and, and my short story took place in uh, the Next Generation universe with uh, Picard going back to this planet. And, in, and he finds that Kirk had a illegitimate kid that he didn't know about on this planet. And that because it's the 60s, equivalent of the 60s in television is such a big thing. And, and that Christianity, I mean, that the Roman Empire is sort of fading, that um, this child grows up the son of the slave and the slave tells the child who his father was. And that then uh, there are all these other survivors of the beagle who still live on the planet who, who this child seeks out. And he sort of fills in the blanks uh, himself of like what Federation is like and Starfleet. And he creates on this planet, basically the, this planet's, Star Trek TV series that he becomes a writer and that he writes this Star Trek TV series. And so that, and that the original short story that I never finished was Picard coming back and finding now on this planet, um, 80 years later, uh, the, the, <laughs> this almost religion, uh, built around, uh, 
Star Trek, this TV show, and he comes back and finds people in costume and fans, you know, cosplaying and all this stuff. And um, and I ended up using some of the ideas of Star Trek as a religion in my Futurama episode. Um, uh, but that, so that's where the, that original idea came from. Was I just thought that that was a funny idea that uh, Star Trek becomes a TV show on this planet in the Star Trek universe. So that's where that idea came from. And so in the book, I altered it and made it um, because I had trouble in my mind making Star Trek V work in my book. And, and for one main reason, which is which just is something that I just can't get past, which is the center of the galaxy is a black hole. Uh, and in Star Trek V, there's the Great Barrier at the center of the galaxy. And on the other side is you know, Shakari. And I just don't, that's just, was just a really tough buy for me to make. Uh, there are other sort of things like that in Star Trek that I was able to sort of explain away and whatever. And I just didn't, I just didn't like having to make that work in my book. It just didn't make any sense to me. So instead I make Star Trek five, um, a movie <laughs> on that planet, <laughs> um, that Kirk and company go back to and, and get to see. And I think that there are plenty of fans who will be very angry about that, but I've also gotten some very good reactions. Well, I personally thought it was pretty clever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that's more of a fun interlude in the book. It's not that important a piece of the book, but it's sort of, uh, that was like, that was how I wanted to handle it because there were just things about Star Trek V, especially going to the center of the galaxy. And it only takes six hours to get to the center of the galaxy which is also ridiculous, uh, even with warp speed. I mean, there's just so many things. And I didn't like that there's a barrier inside the center of the galaxy, and there's also a barrier surrounding the galaxy in where no man was gone before, which is also something I kind of explain in the book by not explaining it, as saying there's no explanation for this. And because <laughs> those are two sort of bits of science that I, I just, I've always had trouble with. Uh, I'm not mm-hmm. a scientist. Uh, and everything else I can sort of forgive, but for some reason those two things really bothered For you, you know, kind of weaving the story with Kirk and talk about uh, crafting all of the people that he kind of bumps into uh, along the way and, and the, the people that you were able to, to find a way to kind of make work with the Kirk story that you were telling but also would be fun for the fans who have spent a lot of time with Star Trek to be like, Oh, hey, Kirk bumped into them. That's awesome. <laughs> well, give me an example of somebody that you... Uh, like, like, uh, like Morgan Baston, uh, you know, being uh, his his aide when he was, uh, you know, uh, Admiral and having been his yeoman yeah. and, and, like, just the idea of, of somebody like that and, and you know, uh, that to me was like, uh, I don't know how, where he came up with this, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I, I think I was driven by, um, like Morgan Batson was just, uh, I wanted to do something where Kirk has a yeoman that's not a woman before he has yeoman Rand, because in Kevin Mike Maneuver, it's very clear that Kirk is uncomfortable with yeoman Rand because she's a woman an attractive woman. And that implies to me that he, if he's had a yeoman before, it was a guy. Uh, and I thought 
All right. And then, uh, all right. So who are characters who might show up later in Star Trek who I can use? And, and I have to be very careful about that because, like, I don't want to use Chekhov, for instance. Uh, I just don't, I don't, I don't want to use a real main character. And then, and then that becomes my, my effort to sort of use somebody you wouldn't think of. And, and timing wise, given Batson's age and the very brief scene that we see him in, in cause and effect, uh, is the right age that he could have been. Cartioman, and he becomes a captain, so he has a good career. And I just thought, and, and so, but that was after some searching of trying to think, okay, I got to think of a guy, I got to think of a crewman. There's sort of a limited number of crewmen in original series that I can use. Um, almost none, really. Uh, I mean, I guess I could have used Desal, uh, but uh, I was, ra- I wanted to be a little bit more uh, unexpected. And also, I'm also was really driven in any way possible to use characters from other series, if possible, obviously using any characters from next generation right. is mm-hmm. almost impossible. So this was a great opportunity to do that. Um, and, uh, and then I'm also driven in, in all those cases to make sure that the story that I do that reference for you, the fan, and I'm glad you caught it. Uh, but I don't stop the story for it. Like, I don't really spend a lot of time talking about that character. He serves a purpose to the story. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time talking about that guy. So the reference is there for the fan. For anybody else reading it, it's just a character. Yeah. Like if you're not a, if you're an original series fan, let's say you never watched Next Generation, or you don't remember Morgan Batson from that episode, you could just read it and you would be like, oh, here's another character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, I think that makes it a lot of fun because it works for both, and you know that's really the goal is to get anybody reading the book, and and I think the book does a, a good enough job that you could give it to somebody who doesn't know a lot about Trek and they'd enjoy it, and then you can give it to a longtime fan and they can enjoy it as well, and you know that's the best kind of of right. story for Star Trek, which you know, with the lit universe being what it is, it can be hard to jump into something in the middle right now because there's a lot of continuity, but this gives you that opportunity to maybe bring somebody in who hasn't really tried this before. Well, that was definitely one of my goals. I mean, I don't think, like, my editor, my editor at at the publishing house was not a huge Star Trek fan. So, so she knew, she, I made her watch a couple episodes and so she was sort of all the way probably all the way over to the far end of the spectrum of somebody who could read it and enjoy it. Cause she seems such she was familiar with it. Uh, a great, a great, a great example of someone like too far off the, who just was my sister, my older sister, I sent her a copy of the book and she tried to read it. And her first question was after the opening page. Okay. So who's McCoy? <laughs> so I thought, okay. This person, this, this is somebody who can't read if you don't know, you need to know who the characters are. You do need to know who Spock and McCoy are uh, and Kirk. But I think you could. I think if you just have that base knowledge, then you can uh, you can read the book. Know that uh, you had kind of ex- expressed the idea on 
the Trek BBS as maybe doing an autobiography from Spock's perspective. I was also thinking uh, just this idea how interesting it would be to have one from McCoy's perspective because there's really so much about that character that you could you could just write a really great book about because there's so much about him to fill in. Um, any right. uh, any chance of something like that coming down the pipeline maybe? Uh, I think so. I mean, I hope so. It, it really it would have to be approved by CBS. It would have to be probably determined by how well this book does. Um, I think the Spock, both Spock and McCoy would be both books that I'd like to write. I think the Spock, both of them present a problem that the Kirk book did not present, which is Spock lived another 80 years after Kirk dies mm-hmm. um, in the Nexus. So you're suddenly right. You, you, there's a lot more to fill in. But what's interesting is there's a lot of really interesting stuff to fill in because what you could do with a Spock book, which would be really interesting, I think, is Spock is there for the coming of the next generation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all definitely. that next generation history, he could really be part of all that what was next generation history, the Cardassian War and, uh, um, well, everything. Uh, you know, and, and he also, as we know, Spock, uh, as we know, gets married sometime in the 24th century. Mm. Um, you guys remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Picard mentions uh, is, is that, meeting Sarek at his son's wedding, I believe. At his son's wedding. The best line, like one of the best lines ever. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it's like, all right, who's that? <laughs> Who does Spock marry? Is Leila Colomi still alive? Uh, so, mm. <laughs> that, you know, to me is like, and then you've got lots of great stuff to talk about, you know, Layla Colomi, and then you've got Life on Vulcan, for the, the, which I think has been covered by a bunch of authors, but it'd be interesting to see it from his point of view. The other thing that we've never, I feel, has never been seen, although maybe you guys can tell me that it's been covered in the, the late universe, is Spock at Starfleet Academy. And hmm. what's it like for him there as probably the only Vulcan in his class? What is What is that like? Uh, for him and then what's it like for him on the Enterprise under Pike Pike obviously means a lot to him yet yet when Spock really doesn't come into his humanity till he serves with Kirk so what is what is limited about his time on Enterprise so there's like a lot of really interesting stuff to cover but then you've also got 80 years to fill in up to the time Spock flips into that black hole to go to the Mm. JJ universe. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I think the only thing that we have for Spock at the Academy is actually William Shatner's book. Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, in Collision Course where Kirk and Spock apparently meet uh, Mm -hmm. in Shatner's book, that's the only one I can really think of where you get, you know, a lot of Spock at the Academy. Yeah, I hate to say I haven't actually read that one. Um, but yeah, I think on the back cover blurb they they mentioned that yeah. So here's a test for you guys. There is a there is a whole little puzzle in there in my book, uh, which I mentioned on the BBS. If you're reading it about Kirk's Andorian roommate at the academy, and it's a mixture of uh, animated series, <laughs> uh, Prime Universe, and JJ's, and it's a puzzle. Uh, I don't want to give anything away, but uh, I wondered if either of you figured it out. Well, I got that because uh, the Andorian roommate is the uh, 
the Andorian replacement for Spock in the animated episode where he uh, died as a child, I believe. Right. And um, that's right. Salem. They got that. Yeah. So I thought it was really cool yeah. that in in this timeline he he quit the academy basically. Well, I, I believe. He, right. That's why? Why did Why did he quit the academy? Oh shoot! I remember this when I was reading, and I slipping my mind. He now. was kicked out. He was. I'll give it to you. He failed the Kobayashi Maru. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, because because Spock had designed the test. So in the right. universe that Spock. So, so in yeah. the, in our universe, Spock <laughs> designed, and I don't say explicitly that Spock designed the Kobayashi Maru because, I, again, I didn't want to unnecessarily piss fans off. But <laughs> but I love that. I love that Spock designed the Kobayashi yeah. Maru. I thought that was mm-hmm. terrific. And so this idea that Spock designs the Kobayashi Maru and that, and that Andorian gets kicked out of Starfleet Academy because he fails it, uh, I thought it was a great sort of little little puzzle, which which now I've given away. But I, I, that was one fu- fun little thing that I did. Yeah, I, that is, it's always fun when, when authors create things in there that you really have to be paying attention for. Um, and anytime somebody wants to reference TAS, that's pretty awesome. Here, here, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Doesn't get a lot <laughs> of love, and it deserves prob- it. Probably, I'm sorry. What were you saying, Dan? I was just saying that it it seems to not get a lot of love sometimes, but it it really does deserve it, especially an episode like yesteryear. Yeah. Well, as I said on BBS, if if uh, if I did a Spock book, yesteryear would definitely be part of it. That that you couldn't avoid that. Because uh, uh, that's such a great story. Oh uh, yeah, that's that's honestly one of Spock's most poignant stories when it comes to right. you know all of TOS and what we kind of learn about that character. Honestly, yeah. If you you know you were talking about what you would have to do to fill in for a Spock book, I really feel like you'd have your work cut out for you the same way with a McCoy book because, I mean, he also lives all the way to, you know, we see the launch of the Enterprise D and yeah, right. he's still alive. No, that's true. That's, I mean, that, that I'm sort of taking one step at a time. I think that, that if I could get to do a second book, it would be Spock next. I'm, so I'm thinking about that more than I'm thinking about McCoy, you also have to. How is McCoy still a Southern gentleman in the 23rd century? How is the South existing? Uh, that culture, you know, and then, and also you get uh, one of Dax's uh, predecessors meets McCoy, right? At Old Miss. Oh, yes, so she does. He had the hands too, of a right? surgeon. And then, but you're right. What is, what is, what is, what is McCoy? Spock is a little easier because, you know, he becomes an ambassador. And well, you know, because he's a captain of the Enterprise, so he's going to be a captain, and then he's going to be an ambassador, and he's going to try to reunify the Romulans, and there's all the conflict with his dad, and all that stuff that would fill in a book, I think, quite nicely. McCoy is much, I think, tougher, but also fun because you, you get to make it all up. Who, who is this? Who is this guy's? Who is this guy for the next eighty years after Kirk died? David, what are uh, obviously? People need to to go pick up uh, the autobiography of James T. Kirk. And but what are some of the other things that, that you're working on right now? And of course, also let everybody know where they can find you online and, and talk to you uh, about the book. Well, I do go on the Trek PBS pretty regularly, looking for people to chat with the book. And 
I think people sometimes are, uh, they don't really engage with me, but I, I am always happy to engage with people. I don't have a website or anything. I suppose I should. Um, maybe I'll set that up at some point. But um, uh, I, uh, I'm i currently a writer at Family Guy, where I've worked on and off for the last 15 years. And it's a great place to work. It's a very different kind of writing than writing the Star Trek book. Um, so I'm, I'm, that's where, that's essentially my day job. It's a great day job. Um, and uh, I'm hoping to continue this, uh, continue these books. I would love to get to write the stock book. I'm also working on a, a couple of other projects that are a little, still a little new and so aren't really worth talking about. But, um, but uh, I guess the BBS, the Trek BBS, unless you guys want to recommend somewhere else to go, uh, to talk about the book, I, I'd be, uh, I'm kind of new to this. So I, I, uh, I, I, I guess I should set up my own website, huh? Well, uh, yeah, we'll definitely have people, and we'll be talking about it on our listeners' discussion group there uh, on Facebook oh, okay, uh, at the Babel Conference. So we'll be talking about there or on Trek uh, FM's Facebook page. Oh, well, I'll, I'll, so. I'll, I'll be happy to join you there. I'll, I'll then. Definitely take a look and engage if anybody wants to. Yeah, I would that's be happy awesome, to have man. you there for sure. <laughs> well, I'm I'm really glad that we got an opportunity to connect with you, and and it was fun reading through the book. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book too, that obviously happened with a Federation first hundred fifty years, was the nice artwork that went along with the book. Mm-hmm. And you know, I really liked that. You know, you had uh, Kirk's Academy picture and and some his driver's license, some other things like that, and just. It really added to, I felt like, the feel of the story. You know, when you pick up an autobiography or a biography of somebody, it always has that middle part that has the pictures, and I really liked that touch right. because it made it feel more like a real, you know, autobiography of, of somebody that you would just pick up when you were searching around in a Barnes & Noble. Yeah, those those illustrations were done by a very talented artist named Russell Walks, who uh, you can he's done a lot of really great uh uh, I wish I had his website, but look for him. Russell Walks, W-A-L-K-S. He designed all that stuff. A lot of that was his ideas that he just sort of ran by me. The the, the thing that I love was I had the idea of the Academy photo and I wrote Kirk's diploma, but his whole, his thing, his contribution was that great page of photos of Kirk and Edith Keeler um, with the little mementos. He designed all of those and, and the Kirk ID card from, traveling to Tarsus 4 with the young picture of William Shatner. I mean, mm. all that stuff was a very talented artist, and he's done a lot of really cool um, Star Wars posters. Excellent. Yeah, no, uh, and another thing I just wanted to mention really quickly that I'd forgotten was uh, one of the things that really led a, a lot of realism to it was the editor's notes, kind of correcting little things throughout the book. I thought it was a <laughs> really nice touch. <laughs> yeah, well, that was, that was something that I'd done in uh, Federation. Uh, the first book, and I really enjoyed that because it gave a sense that you know that the person writing this book is writing something. Uh, in, the, in the sense of Federation, the idea was I was fill, I was getting to fill in stuff that actually the, the way it started. Not to talk too, too long about it, but the way the whole idea started of doing editor's notes was. I had to figure out some way in Federation to include uh, the eugenics wars uh, that had to be part of a history book of the Federation. But we all lived through the 1990s. 
there was no eugenics wars. Uh, so, and, and that bothered me because for me, uh, when you're doing this sort of role play in a book, you want to believe that this, that started the Star Trek future might still happen. And that somehow this history book can exist as a history book in our, in our universe. And so I explained it in a footnote. I basically imply that somebody went, somebody went back in time and maybe changed, created an alternate universe where the eugenics wars didn't happen. And, I do it very subtly, but that was why my way of sort of solving a problem that I had as a writer. And then I realized that it's a great way to add information that doesn't quite fit in the narrative. And then and during the autobiography book, I realized what this allowed me to do was to have Kirk get things, some things wrong. And that made him seem, again, more human. It's not a perfect book. So the editor says, oh, he thinks it's Jonathan Archer, but it's Henry Archer or... You know, he's getting he's getting this wrong or he, you know, there, there's all these sort of um, editor's notes throughout uh, that are the idea being there was a discussion about this book and that, that Kirk might have gotten some of his facts wrong and that made him seem more human. Yeah, it really it really does add something to a book that I think a lot of fans are just going to. Uh, eat up and again i think it's it's a great book as you know as long as somebody knows who kirk spock and mccoy are it's a it's a good book to to give to somebody thanks yeah thank you for saying so not my sister but anybody else (laughs) 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 well david thank you so much for for coming on and talk about the book i love the the behind the scenes and and I mean obviously taking on a book of this kind of magnitude is tough you know with with a, the kind of person and character that Kirk is to so many people and uh, it's always great to hear how an author comes to the decisions they make and why and uh, I think it's a it's a good successful book for people and uh, I th- I hope that that it'll be successful because I would really like to see you know that Spock biography and that McCoy biography too well thanks so much uh, I really appreciate it I I, uh, I appreciate your enthusiasm and I it's always nice to hear that somebody actually liked the book so I hope more <laughs> people sure. do but uh, thank you so much for having me on and talking to you about it it's a lot of fun Well, thanks so much for being on the show. We really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Well, Matthew, I had a lot of fun talking with David Goodman, uh, the editor, not the author of the autobiography of James T. Kirk, the author, of course, being the man, the legend himself, Captain James T. Kirk. When you're writing a book about the man, the myth, and the legend, how do you edit them and say uh uh we're gonna have to put an editor's note here because you got that wrong i guess it's maybe good that he got lost in the nexus so he couldn't correct any of the mistakes you know you could get really upset about that yeah that was uh i I would imagine that uh it would be hard to look james t kirk in the face and say uh actually you're wrong about that uh that's the henry archer building not the jonathan archer building yeah uh I feel like he he might just glare at you and or like karate chop you so you wake up like a day later. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably not a good idea. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed the discussion. It was a lot of fun getting the background information and, you know, just taking on a project like that. So I'm glad David came on to talk to us about it. 
I wanted to remind everybody, obviously, that you can find all of our shows at iTunes.com slash TrekFM, and we'd really appreciate it if you'd give us a star rating review. Uh, it helps us grow, uh, the show grow, it makes us more visible, and it's only you, the listener, can really make that happen. So go over to iTunes, give us a review, but if you're not on iTunes and you'd like to listen to the shows, remember that you can find us all over the place. You can find us on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from the website and grab the RSS link as well. Now, two big thanks for guys who bring this show to you each week. It's Will Wynn and Ken Tripp, and it's because of their support on Patreon that this show comes to you each week. And uh, these guys have been with us in the show for so long, and if you would like to help out the show the way they do, Go to patreon.com slash trekfm. We are a listener-supported network, and that means that we run off the support that we get from the listeners. It also means that we don't have to do a ton of ads on the shows. They get to be pretty clean. You get to enjoy what you're listening to without being assaulted by all these different things. If you like that and you love the what we do and have a passion for the things that we talk about, go to patreon.com slash trekfm. Help support the network and keep all of this content coming to you. And we got some great perks for you. You can have early access to content like the guys do here on the show every week. They get to hear Literary Treks before anybody else. Exclusive content. You could be on the Patreon roundtable and so much more. And again, just go to patreon.com slash trekfm to see how you can help keep this network coming to you each and every week. Now, Dan, when you're not sitting around with a glass of Saurian brandy or trying to write your memoirs, where can we find you? Uh, well, Matthew, uh, you know, I, I do enjoy a good glass of Saurian brandy every once in a while. But uh, when I'm not indulging, you can find me online. Uh, I'm at www.treklet.com, and there you'll find my website where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. Uh, I'm on facebook.com slash treklitreviews, and... Twitter at Treklet Reviews and at Kurtrats, which is my personal Twitter feed, and that's K E R T R A T S, and also on Instagram at Kurtrats47. And Matthew, when you're not trying to avoid Finnegan's latest prank, uh, where can we find you? I hate that guy. He's such a jerk. Ugh. You can find me uh, probably complaining about him on Twitter at MattRushing02, taking pictures of the mayhem that he created on Instagram at MRushing. You can also find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones, uh, who may or may not be a part of the Star Trek universe now, at least the literary universe, because of James Swallow. Just check that out. Uh, you can find me doing The 602 Club. Uh, it's the place where we talk about all things geeky but don't have to do with Star Trek, and it's a great place to, to have a good time with all the geek things that we love but we don't necessarily get to talk about in our other Star Trek shows. Uh, so we pick a new topic each week. It's a lot of fun. Um, we try to introduce people to things they may have never tried, and it, it's just a great place to be. So come hang out with us and Ruby, and of course you can find me on my own personal blog as well at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.